0: Hello, and welcome to The Faithful Forebears, Episode 12, Guillaume de Marchaud. Hello, and welcome back. Sorry it's been a while. As you know, I'm a pastor, and it was just Easter, so there was a lot going on. But we're back on track, and hopefully, I'll have another episode out in a week or two instead of the more usual three weeks. But I'm very excited about this episode because this episode is going to be very different from any other episode. Because this episode, I'm doing an interview. So, say hello to my good friend and also brother-in-law, Christian Giebert. Hey, everybody. So, I'm really excited to have Christian on because not only is he a lover of history... Um, and also a music lover he is a doctoral student or now doctoral candidate yeah yeah doctoral candidate in composition at ucla and he's also a music director at emmanuel lutheran church in orange so this is going to be a good episode so this episode we are talking all about guillaume de marchaux i say that right yeah so he is born in the 1300s right
1: He's born, we think he was born in 1300, maybe as late as 1302.
0: So give me like a two sentence summary of why Machaut is so important to Christianity and to music and civilization.
1: Well, Machaut is the sacred music composer of the medieval era. And so even though he was also known in the secular world as a poet, and a very prolific poet, It's church music that he's the most important person of for basically centuries long.
0: And also he's interesting in some other ways too because he was also like a uh, priest and a soldier?
1: Yes, he was under the employ of of a King John of Bohemia. And so he traveled a lot uh, when he was young and he was a soldier. He had to escort English troops at one point Um, and he was also... A sort of a sort of troubadour and poet at this time, as well, so he did time in the military and he he was also canonized and then was a church musician for most of his life as well
0: thanks, so he's like almost as cool as Hildegard in Bingen and all the different things that he's done
1: yes, he's very he has a, he has a very colorful and interesting life. He survived the Black Death um when he wasn't that old, and he describes that in his poetry also. And he's—it's um, notable that he thrived in this era when a lot of the population of Europe was going down, um, for one thing. But also, he had the time since he grew fairly old into his seventies. He had the time near the end of his life to compile all of his his own works, and um, that was that's pretty remarkable. Not now, and now anybody might compile all of their own things um, in any way, but this early in. In Western history that's pretty rare and that's why he's the first composer uh, for whom we have a lot of bibliographic information and uh, all, all kinds of other information as well because he wrote a treatise on poetry among so many other things and he collected all that stuff himself so
0: so that's how we know about him is his collection
1: yes and also because he was so lucky enough to throughout his life be the secretary of first King John of Bohemia and then other basically patrons for him because he had pretty humble beginnings he um he was born in the Champagne region probably in a village called musho which is why he's called that and um so and later he became sort of an important um church worker but he wasn't necessarily a, a royal person or a person of importance but by the time uh, by the time he died he was absolutely a household name in in europe and he was known all the way into Greece and all these other places. He'd also been to a lot of these places when he was younger. He his role as as the secretary brought him all the way up to like what's modern day Lithuania. So he really got around in mm-hmm. his time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He's all over the place. He is. Well, now we've gotten to know a little bit about Ma but what is the what's the world like that my show is born into and especially what is the world of music like because I know 1300s like you mentioned things are kinda going downhill in Europe you've got the Black Death you've got the papacy and all sorts of crazy things which I think we're gonna get to in another episode Um, and you have different wars and invasions and all sorts of um, unrest Uh, but tell me a little bit about the music
1: well so um, to catch us up all the way up to Moschaux's era, we need to start with, um, we need to work our way there really quickly from chant, and I know you already covered Hildegard, so...
0: And a little bit uh, Gregory, way back in the beginning.
1: So, but at this time, all this uh, early medieval music, you don't really think about a composer, necessarily. Hildegard's a bit of an an interesting exception, but um, when you think of all these books of chants that were um, sung, they weren't written down first, and then they eventually were they, we eventually invented a music notation for them, and then that notation got more and more um, standardized. And then by around uh, by around the end of the first millennium AD, we had a lot of books that you could use and things like that, and people were starting to decorate the chants also a little bit. But it's important to remember, it's really, um, this is a really big thing about Mosheau, it's important to remember that before him, there weren't very many, there wasn't, the idea of a composer, it, w- it wasn't really a thing. Nowadays, um, it's part of our life. We always think part of all of our Western music history that gets more and more so the ego and the, the individual agency of the composer. But that's not what, ha- what, it's not how it started. It was very anonymous, the way these things were written down and written. and um, It was more akin to folk music, you could say.
0: And I've heard of this before in uh, Greece and Roman art, that the focus is on the art. It's not on the artist. So all the attention's on the art, and yeah, the artist just kind of gets lost and is unimportant almost.
1: Right. In fact, um, it fa- that faded away so slowly in Western music history. Even J.S. Bach didn't wouldn't have thought of himself as the supreme creator and controller of all of his works. Like, we don't... We see some of that in see a little bit of that in a one or two renaissance composers and we see that in um beethoven and then after that everybody in the romantic era but before that that's i mean that's only a couple hundred years ago whereas we're talking here about stuff that's 700 years ago so um yeah it's it's really just didn't exist a lot of that had to do with people trying to create music um to the glory of god or but but you can't really even say that either because a lot because it's not like they were pop stars of the secular world that were known as composers there were people and they were called troubadours and we know that word now but it wasn't like um, it wasn't to the degree that it would be today as a composer um, which is which is really important and so chant um, chant first starts as just one note at a time and um, it's very very simple but then what happens is people start decorating a little bit, and then they start adding a few more things to chant.
0: Well, should we see a couple of examples of that? Yeah, let's do that. All right, so first we'll just check out some basic Gregorian chant, probably not actually what Gregory would do, but influenced by Gregory. So yes. is, is this roughly what year is this? This first one? Yeah.
1: Well, it's not um, – I don't think it's actually known. I think it's more um, – so, so what we're about to hear is a – it's actually we're just going to hear one phrase of single line chant i think it's alleluia and then immediately after we hear a second voice come in and that addition of one or a few more voices that can just sing along with the chant in sort of close harmony parallel harmony in other words not something that you would have to write down that is um that's called organum and we hear that a lot of performances of Hildegard's music, they do that. Um, so that is what we can hear, what our first example is. probably could have been done any time from around 900 on.
0: All right, let's check it out. Right, that was pretty cool. That's kind of like what I imagined medieval music to be like.
1: Yeah, we're starting to get to music now where it kind of has to be written down for it to be almost quite this interesting. And uh, that's where we get to the next really big shift in music, which is the idea of a singular, let's say, music director writing out parts that are more than two parts Uh, choral parts for the singers because this was all vocal music at this for these many hundreds of years
0: Well can we talk a little bit about what was music like for the average Christian and the average Christian service because we've been talking about people you know from England and Germany and Italy and um, even like Constantinople but what was just I mean how often would they use songs How, how would they even sing the same song at all? Right well um
1: Music of this time, church music of this time, was very highly controlled, and for better or for worse, it produced a a very sort of clarified art form that we now know as Gregorian chant. All these different countries had their own versions of chant, but a lot, but many of them were Latin, especially in Europe. They were, you know, using the they were using um, Latin because they considered themselves um, from that tradition. But uh, so. There was less uh, congregational participation, hymn participation. Um, sometimes there was, but you you could imagine that the very strict church in this period. Not everybody could read, not everybody could speak Latin. So a very highly trained um, group of choristers would would almost always sing this stuff alone, and there was little or no instrumental music in church. It was considered very um, secular. Uh, so the that's why all of this great all of these great masses and things and church music from all these medieval and renaissance times are all choral music because there's no there are actually no independent instrumental parts written for for most of them um for a long time all the way until the baroque period not until then do you start getting church music and other music being written with sort of busy separate like for example violin parts that's later
0: so Trumpets at Easter are a fairly recent thing.
1: Yeah, well, fairly recent if you, have like, 400 years, maybe. Yeah, yeah. all right. Um, yeah, gotcha. Yeah, I mean, it's not to say that instruments weren't used. Macho, um, uh this is getting too far ahead, but there's a couple of really interesting moments in, in his mass where there's no text that fits it. So it's clearly meant to be instrumental, like just these couple little tags, a couple seconds here and there. Um, and so that's very fascinating for musicologists everywhere to try to figure out what that was about um but so yes and um and we got to talk about the ordinary versus the propers because it's a big thing i have no idea what that is so here's what it is so what it is is that um in a in a church service of this time and still still in a catholic church service but in many protestant traditions also there is there is a section of the service or mass that is the same every sunday or every week or every day or whatever and then there are the parts that are different so we now know these as the lectionary or the different readings or whatever and all church traditions have their different take on this but you know we go many of them are a year long you know right sometimes more than a year long so we like the ones that occur for example once a year would be like easter or christmas to be very basic but there are also very many others of course Um, But then there are parts of the service that are the same every um, mass and every Saturday or Sunday or whatever. And those are um, those are the five, those five, there are five parts. There are the Kyrie, which is Lord have mercy, that that part, very short text wise. And then there's the Gloria, which um, which we all still use. And then there's the Credo, which is the most text heavy. And that's the that's the Nicene Creed. Right. And then there there's the Sanctus, which is holy, 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 um, and God of Sabaoth, that whole that whole part. And then, and that's fairly short and repetitive, and then there's the Agnus Dei, the Lamb, Lamb of God who takest away the sin of the world, um, which is also repetitive and not a lot of text. So those five parts are, were kept, they said those or sung those, those every time.
0: Those make up the standard mass. Got yes. it. Yeah, I always wondered what those five parts were about. Fun fact, interesting thing. Eastern Orthodox. I went to an Eastern Orthodox church when I was going to seminary. They don't have the the different things. It's exactly the same every week, huh. and they all know it by heart. Wow! And it's in Greek. And they laugh at Protestants and Catholics because they have to pick up uh, oh. hymnals and things and huh. read different things. So yeah. they have
1: only they have only ordinaries. I guess so. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Although they wouldn't like you calling it. They probably ordinary.
1: wouldn't. No, they wouldn't like that. Yeah. It's probably not called that. But um, yeah, so. So um, and in a lot of church services, that that's very much still the case. And then there's the like modular other parts that you take out every week and put in whatever is the festival of that week or the reading, for example, or or thing that the, that's being preached on.
0: And that's the proper.
1: And those are the proper's. Yeah, that's called the proper's. And this is a bit. This is huge in church music, because in this period of time, we are now in the ver- We're still in the early or high. Um, medieval, We're in like 1100, 1200. And we're talking about um, certain figures, certain pre-Moschot figures that found themselves setting a lot of chants that were in the proper and elaborating on them and composing very flowery things around them. And the bi- the biggest of these was a man, a music director by the name of Perotin or Perotin, Perotin the Great. Ooh. and um, And at this point and he worked in Notre Dame in Paris and he worked in the Notre Dame
0: cathedral the Notre Dame cathedral the that one. just just yeah. burnt down right which we were curious about it we looked it up so it was started construction in 1163 and it wasn't finished until 1260 but they started using it in like i don't know 10 years after they started building it
1: yes so so like paritan was was uh, was using it and it wasn't finished. it wasn't quite finished yet cuz those things took hundreds of years to build so paritan is is another big name in in uh, music this is like around 1200 okay. and at this point um he's he's working in a style which is now called the ars antiqua or the old style it wasn't called that at the time of course but it's the old style compared to Machot's new style later but it's the style where you take that chant that we heard um and you just everybody knows how it goes everybody knows the notes. So you take one part, the lowest part usually, and that group of male voices, they're mostly all male, um, but that group of voices, the lowest voices, holds out those notes long. And then the notes above it, Perotan, this part you actually had to use written notated music for. Perotan had, in some cases, two or three other voices doing a rhythmic thing on top of it using a series of rhythmic modes, different ways to get different little... Rhythmic um, devices in there, and now we're we're starting to hear something that sounds like a piece of music that's really kind of cooking. But the the uh, the bottom part, the chant part, is actually drawn out so long that it's unrecognizable. He changes notes every couple of minutes. Whoa. It holds it holds out and it holds out. Um, that is the tenor, and that is the tenor part. Right. Yeah, and, and- that's where we get the word tenor from the, the modern choral part. That's what tenor comes from.
0: But is it more like a bass in a modern bass, or is it really in the range of a modern tenor?
1: It's in the, it's in the range of mid-male voice, so ten, okay. low tenor maybe. Um, and a good question about the bass, because that's another Mosheau thing, but the bass did not exist yet. Huh. And uh, this is kind of funny. They just to, didn't sing
0: that low back then.
1: They People maybe did, and they maybe sang all this stuff low. Maybe they had some... So they could have just taken it all down, but... But what I really mean is that there was no such thing as the bass function yet, and this is something that like we cannot wrap our minds around as modern people. We've had bass lines are in are in all of our music now, right? right? Popular and and church. It's thumping. Yeah, it's thumping. It's it's all about it. You might say, and and it has been. <laughs> That's good. And it actually has been since 1600, since the since the Renaissance choral style died out. And the instrumental figured bass style um, came in, and then we're talking about the Baroque era, and that's when the bass line became its own thing.
0: You don't think of Baroque as being all about the bass,
1: yeah, but it totally is, and it was the first era. It was the first era of music that was, but the bass, um, the bass wasn't always there. Chant, I mean, chant is like pretty much one part, and then you get a few more parts, and then a few more, and then Macho uh, is is a guy who added a a voice to the lower end that was called the contra tenor and Mm. it was sharing the range and going sometimes lower than the tenor but it's not even until a few people later a few generations later than my show that people started composers started writing lower notes so it happened slowly yeah
0: we're getting ahead of ourselves we are let's hear uh what's his name again perotan perotan all right Let's to, hear a little bit of paratense and remember, remind us what we need to be listening for.
1: So this is um, this is from a proper called Viderunt omnis and what we need to be listening for is we'll hear the all start, the word vi, the, the first syllable of V you'll hear very clearly. Um, but then you'll notice that the, that this one part, the tenor, holds out uh, this note and then you'll hear the other three voices. this is four voice um, polyphonic music you'll hear them sort of dancing around. Polyphony being the term that we're using to mean music for multiple independent parts.
0: All right, yeah. sounds good. Well, let's check it out. V- Okay, so that was pretty fun. And I'll admit, as I listened to it, I giggled a little bit.
1: Yeah, it's, it's cute. The, it's very effective and rhythmic, which you can't say about chant. A lot of complicated, interesting stuff is happening, but it's still very limited. And we'll see how Macho sort of breaks that up. But I'll just also say, because I really want to say this, that the tenor part is so called. This is where that word comes from. And that is because the word tenor means to hold. It comes from the root, the Latin root, to hold. And so that's, no, that's the voice part that's holding out those super long notes. And
0: literally, that whole time, that full minute clip, that guy was just holding that, that note.
1: Yeah, we we just we, he basically held out V for many, many seconds, and then finally gets to D, and then he he won't even change notes uh, for another minute or so. So hold out, yeah, that's where that part comes from. And because the, the voices aren't equal, the there's clearly one voice that has the melody, you could say, and. We always think that the melody is on the top now. You're listening for it in the highest part. That's not how the medieval people or the Renaissance people thought about melody. They thought it was in the tenor. That's It always was, yeah, the part that held out the chant melody, tenor. i, I got to yeah.
0: say, after hearing the old chant and then hearing this, it's a very different feeling. I can see how people were getting very excited about this yes, new style.
1: Yes, they were. somewhere, but uh, then the most um, conservative were probably getting very annoyed that things were getting so... Flamboyant Those kids
0: and their rock and roll And their long hair And all that jazz Right So
1: that really kind of um, Brings us right to Machot. Ah we can finally talk about him Yeah Sounds great (laughs) Yeah Um, Because So um, Machot was born in about 1300 By this time Largely because of another composer A little bit earlier A generation before him Called Philippe de Vitry um, There was a new There was a kind of brand new invention of music theory that allowed composers to write things that were a lot more interesting. And even Perotan was working under extreme rhythmic limits. All those things sounded very repetitive, for example.
0: Now, is this something that, like, actually you weren't allowed to do, or it was just a convention that, like, nobody thought of? Like, like oh, I could do that. Or was it like, no, you can't do that? I think it was a, uh, it was a convention
1: that just nobody was doing. I don't think... N- well, yeah, not, I'm not exactly sure. I'm not sure we know, but I know that um, part of the reason why music developed so slowly here is that um, people were very cautious. So it, the answer to your question might well be people didn't want to, like, stir the pot um, because they wanted, to, they wanted to keep the aura of seriousness for as long as, as possible before, before the next thing developed.
0: Wow. That's pretty yeah. funny. So that's yeah. I mean that's the same problem that we see basically throughout church music history, right?
1: Yeah. There's always a push and pull. Anytime something some new technology or style becomes used or co-opted by the church, there will always be a pushback. And so that's what happens here. There's a there's a new um, there is a there's there was like an old uh, sort of sanctity to the way they wrote rhythms. It was very trinitarian. Threes were very important. And, um, suddenly there was this new way to write things where you could write a lot of, a lot of different kinds of faster rhythms and quicker little things, and you could make your parts, your parts against each other more complicated. And that's what, that's the era that Mosheau lives in, and it's now called the Ars Nova, new, the new art